Listen, there's a great work to be done. As soon as you win this court battle, you must deliver this message. Take advantage of this opportunity and declare a powerful message to this world. He expects more of us. He believes we can do more. Who's going to stop Christ? Who's going to stop Christ from getting this work done? This is Behind the Work. Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you live today from the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma. And it is December 7th, the exact anniversary of the 31 years of the Philadelphia Church of God. 31 years ago today, this church started. And of course, the PCG is the engine of God's work. This church actually started with a firing. And perhaps you're familiar with this history. A lot of this is covered in a book that we have available to you for free at thetrumpet.com called Raising the Ruins. But Mr. Gerald Flurry and the late John Amos were fired because of a manuscript called Malachi's Message. This is a book with inspired revelation straight from God that reveals the who, what, when, where, and why of where God is working today. That, that manuscript written by Mr. Flurry 31 plus years ago shows exactly the reason why God had to leave the worldwide church of God. Mr. Flurry and Mr. Amos were ministers in the WCG serving together in Oklahoma. And Mr. Amos was Mr. Flurry's assistant minister, basically. But the two of them started to see a systematic destruction of the doctrines of the WCG as revealed to the late Herbert W. Armstrong by God. And they couldn't just sit back there and watch. They couldn't bear to allow something like this to take place. Now, they definitely tried to. They tried to wait around for a couple of years just to see if God would work out the problems in the WCG. In fact, Mr. Flurry, writing about this, said that anybody who spoke out about these problems had a bad attitude. Or so I reasoned. This is from an article called December 7th, Remembering Why I Was Fired, available at pcg.church. He continues here. After those two years, I began to see that my reasoning was wrong. Five of the seven eras in Revelation 2 and 3 rebelled against God, which is a very dangerous warning to all of God's people. And what did God do? He moved his lamp. So the only safe method for us is to move when God moves the lamp. So God revealed this understanding, and it is made plain in that book, Malachi's Message, again, available to you for free at thetrumpet.com, this book that essentially started the PCG. This was the very reason why Mr. Flurry and Mr. Amos were fired 
by WCG leadership on December 7th, 1989. And then he says here in this article, December 7th, remembering why I was fired, doctrinal changes were only a part of the process. Really exposing all of the changes in the WCG did get Mr. Flurry in a lot of trouble, obviously. But it was even more not just about the doctrinal changes, but about government. It was about people rejecting God's government, rejecting what God had done through Mr. Armstrong. People very quickly stopped believing that God had worked through Mr. Armstrong once Mr. Armstrong died in 1986. It didn't take long for people to turn away from that basic understanding. Matthew 17 verses 10 through 11 show that God was going to use a man to restore all things, all doctrines, all truth to God's church. And certainly, if you look at the fruits, it becomes obvious that Mr. Armstrong did this. Why were so many of God's own people so quick to reject that once Mr. Armstrong died? Essentially, Mr. Flurry was asking, where is the God of Elijah? The end time Elijah, you could prove, is Mr. Armstrong. Where is that God? The God who did such an astounding work through the WCG using Mr. Armstrong. And why was no one else curious about this subject? Why did almost everybody so quickly forget all the miracles God had done in that work? Now, quite often, Mr. Flurry and others in the church have compared some of the lessons from that firing 31 years ago today to another event that happened on this day 79 years ago. And that is the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And I think it is worth reminding ourselves from time to time, perhaps rather regularly, that this is a spiritual war. If you knew every day that once you stepped outside your house, there'd be bullets whizzing through the air, you'd probably prepare yourself quite thoroughly before ever stepping outside. You'd probably make sure you had the appropriate protection on and that you had a specific plan of, of action for navigating outside. Obviously, physical war so often is more real to us than spiritual war but it really shouldn't be that way right before this show started there was a key of david playing by mr flurry about the real star wars your bible actually talks about spirit beings basically hurling planets at each other epic battles in the universe that have led to the state of decay the universe is in right now. Those are real spiritual battles. And there are real battles going on for human minds all the time. 
Mr. Flurry called that December 7th, 1989 firing a violent, history-altering spiritual attack on God's church. It was a war. It was an act of war by an evil spirit being. Pearl Harbor was an act of war by a physical enemy of the United States. There's a lot of parallels between this and what God's church has gone through in the last several decades. Here's an article from December, December 7th, 2011 at thetrumpet.com titled, 70 Years Later, Pearl Harbor is More Relevant Than Ever by Mr. Joel Hilliker. And he says, that attack holds a vivid lesson for you and me. A profoundly relevant lesson written in the blood of the 2,400 Americans killed. And again, it's no coincidence that this Pearl Harbor attack took place on the very same date as another attack, a spiritual attack, back in 1989, that time. Mr. Fl- Mr. Hilliker writes here, In 1940, as Japan's land war with China raged, its need for more resources became plain. Rumors spread of Japan possibly expanding the war. American strategists were aware that Pearl Harbor was a potential target. That is where the U.S. Pacific Fleet, usually berthed on the American mainland, was located at the time. And then Mr. Hilliker goes on to describe multiple military officials warning that an attack on Pearl Harbor was imminent, that it was a clear objective of Japan. And every one of these officials who warned about this attack seemingly was dismissed pretty quickly. They lost their jobs for warning correctly about what was about to happen. One here protested both to the U.S. president and the secretary of the Navy and was dismissed for his trouble. The chief of naval intelligence insisted that Pearl Harbor be warned of looming attack and was also replaced. Mr. Hilliker continues how easy it is and how distressingly common to overlook a warning. Hindsight may be 2020, but foresight is rare and acting on it exceedingly so. Similar unheeded signals preceded 9-11. And then Mr. Hilliker goes on to talk about a warning taking place today through God's work. Warnings of what already happened in this church, that spiritual attack by Satan in 1989, and even worse things to come. And we can know, based on prophecies in the Bible, exactly what's about to come. Mr. Hilliker writes that the PCG began on the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack is uniquely fitting. Now, nine years later, after that was written, the signs are even more apparent to us of what is coming. Just crippling national division and hatred and violence and strife and all kinds of problems. 
That's what we're dealing with today. And it is terrifying. Pearl Harbor is the type of event that people alive at the time remember forever. So was 9-11. These are the kinds of events where you remember where you were when that crisis, that tragedy struck. And the same is true of that December 7th, 1989 firing of Mr. Flurry and Mr. Amos. A couple years ago on this show, I had the chance to interview their daughters. Uh, and I'm just going to play a couple short clips for you from these interviews. The first is from Mr. Flurry's daughter, Mrs. Laura Turgeon, clip one. You are an original 12 church member. Uh, you were there when the church began on December 7th, 1989. Your brother, Trumpet Daily Radio Show host Stephen Flurry, has written that he will always remember where he was and what he was doing the day his father was fired from his position as a minister in the Worldwide Church of God. He was on the Ambassador College campus in Big Sandy, Texas, as a second-year student. He was attending the groundbreaking ceremony for a new Hall of Administration building, and from what I understand, they were even planning on moving church headquarters from California to Texas, which was the yes. purpose for that building. Uh, Pastor General Joseph Takach attended the ceremony. Right after that, the college dean and assistant dean called Mr. Stephen Flurry into their office and informed him that his father, Mr. Gerald Flurry, had written a manuscript critical of church administration. That manuscript, finished soon thereafter, became Malachi's message. So, do you remember where you were and what you were doing that day? like your brother does. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's hard <laughs> to forget, actually. Um, but I was in an apartment at the time when he um, and Mr. Amos had been called into Mr. Dukacha Jr.'s office. And to give you a little bit of a backstory, um, I knew about Malachi's message um, from the previous feast. And and I had just graduated from Ambassador College in May, and I was hired on at church administration, and I worked in Mr. Dukacha Jr.'s office. So when I went back to work after the feast, knowing about Malachi's message, um, I knew that at some point that, that down the road it would come to a head, obviously, with my father. And, um, and so anyway, uh, what happened was I was waiting in um, my apartment that I shared with two other girls uh, to hear from my dad after he and Mr. Amos got done with their meeting with Mr. Dukach Jr. Um, but that morning, what happened was my father called me at 6.30 a.m. and um, told me that, and this was very unusual for him to call me at 6.30 in the morning, but he said, uh, we have a problem. Um, they know about Malachi's message, and it's totally up to you, but if you would like to go into work, you know, it's your decision. Well, at that point, I, I knew I didn't want to go into work because I knew that I agreed with Malachi's message after proving it, and um, so I did not go into work, and that's why I was in the apartment, and I basically knew um, uh, that my father would was going to be fired. That was probably the most likely outcome. And um, so at 8.15 sharp, I got a call from Mr. Koch Jr. Um, asking um, how I was because he obviously was calling me having not come into work at 8 like I normally would and um, proceeded to ask me if I knew about what my father had written. And I said yes. And 
Um, and so it, it was a rather unpleasant conversation, um, but I obviously lost my job too, but was also planning to quit. But anyway, that's basically where I was, was in that apartment waiting for my father to call. And then that was in the evening later in the day. So I was in my apartment all day packing, getting ready to move back to Oklahoma for a major life change. So this was the day of December 7th, yes. 1989, and your father and Mr. John Amos flew from Oklahoma to California that day yes. to get fired. And you pretty much knew ahead of time that was going to happen. Yes. And I think it's astounding that you were working for the very man who ended up firing your own father. I don't, yes. know, if, I don't know if that <laughs> fact gets brought up enough, but it is very interesting that that's the position you were in. All right. So that was Mrs. Laura Turgeon. Uh, my own mother and one of the first 12 members of the Philadelphia Church of God who met for Sabbath services on the first time for the first time uh, nine days later on December 16th, 1989. Again, just an unforgettable day in the history of many church members' lives. Now we're going to, going to hear from the daughter of the late John Amos. Mrs. Andrea Fraser. I was 17 years old, so I was the youngest of the 12, and uh, it was an exciting time. I was, before that, actually, it was, I was so involved in the YOU, and I loved everything about it, and being 17, I was so close to applying for AC and getting ready for that and thinking about what my future would be. And then everything changed. And I, from that point on, I never looked back, never had any regrets um, as far as, oh, I could have done this or it could have been this way. Um, in my mind, I really just looked forward. And I think my parents had the, a huge, obviously, a huge part in that. And um, from memory, it was just an exciting time. And my dad's excitement just really seemed to have a calming effect on our family. And um, I just remember him uh, really looking forward to always what was going to come next. And in that time, it was seemed a lot of unknowns, you know, what would happen next. But he was at the same time, he was really realistic. And he was unsure how he was going to support the family financially. Um, he was just about to turn 61. Mm. So <laughs> most people at that time in their life are looking to retire. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, he didn't seem at all worried at the same time. And I feel like that looking back on it, I can see that that was his faith. And it really just amazes me, you know, the faith that he had to step out like that. And he also knew that, you know, God was taking care of his church. And he, like I said, he didn't seem stressed or worried mm -hmm. about it. And uh, he didn't know exactly how God would take care of everything and what would happen next. But he knew who was being used by God to uh, go further, obviously, after the changes in the church. And he knew who God was using and revealing his truth to. So at the same time, he, he, he was happy and he 
seemed very relieved. So that's basically within our family mm-hmm. um, things that I remember personally. Again, that was Mrs. Andrea Fraser, the daughter of the late John Amos, one of the two founding members of the Philadelphia Church of God. Now, Mrs. Turgeon and Mrs. Fraser were both reminiscing on what they remembered from December 7th, 1989, this all-out spiritual attack on God's own church. 31 years ago today. Now, this is, is a day that could be remembered as a day of infamy for God's church in some ways, just like has has been used to describe Pearl Harbor. But there is so much good that has happened on this day. In fact, on this day in 2007, Mr. Fleury gained new understanding of the eternal has chosen Jerusalem vision. And just at this past Feast of Tabernacles, members of the PCG received a book by that title by Mr. Fleury. The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem. The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem. And that's available for free to you at thetrumpet.com as well. This vision is expansive. It goes beyond the 1,000-year wonderful world tomorrow. And of course, the world tomorrow is beyond the coming time of suffering foretold in your Bible. The eternal has chosen Jerusalem in the past, in the present, but especially in the future. He is so excited about new Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is only mentioned twice in the entire Bible, at least by that term. Revelation 3, verse 12 is one of those times. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. This is talking about God writing the name of New Jerusalem on a group of loyal saints spiritually transformed saints and basically dwelling at headquarters of the universe with God forever. New Jerusalem coming down from heaven and being right here on earth and us being right there with him if we are loyal to him today. Revelation 21 Verse 2 is the other reference to New Jerusalem. Again, this revelation that Mr. Fleury received on this day in 2007. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. It goes on to talk about how God will heal minds, and he will help people recover 
from all the suffering they've gone through in this life. What a hope-filled, beautiful time where God himself will dwell among us in New Jerusalem. And coincidentally, I actually received a poem from one of my many prolific poet friends over the weekend. And this is about New Jerusalem. Interesting that it's part of the topic today. So I just wanted to read this to you quickly. Recite this excellent poem. Twelve foundations and built upon promises of two covenants and promised sons above and in love of the mother of all. That's 1500 miles tall that never thus fall. No engagement ring can match the stellar of stones of our eternal of homes. Church of the firstborn that yearn on a sojourn, keeping the word of patience firm like a good perm. A vision that illuminates if we just concentrate. Envisionment transcending discouragements, employed in making New Jerusalem our chief joy. The prominence of its dominance involves our crowns and the king of kings that we revolve around. Gripping so tight in this fight till our knuckles turn white for a city chosen twice. We still strive through our physical lives side by side for a new name. The builder and maker has planned it for the planet. So the beauty and refinement is our time spent on assignment. Projections of the future as the past becomes a tutor. Into infinity we look upon and way beyond. Thinking like our father makes us the realest sons. The honor to whom we have come upon to Mount Zion of the living God. Again, just an incredible poem sent to me by one of my prolific poet friends just this past weekend. New Jerusalem, what a spectacular vision given to Mr. Flurry in more depth on this day 13 years ago. In an article titled December 7th, God's House and New Jerusalem, Mr. Flurry wrote, God is telling us that if we want to avoid being deceived and if we want to live exciting, positive, hope-filled lives, then we must understand this vision of New Jerusalem. We must anchor our minds in this mind-inspiring hope. The fact that we think about New Jerusalem the way God does shows we are his sons. And then finally, it's impossible to get discouraged when we are filled with the vision of New Jerusalem. How many times have you gotten discouraged when your mind was filled with this vision? Not once. This is not to say we won't experience rough patches in our lives, but we can avoid discouragement and sadness by setting our hearts and minds on New Jerusalem. Do you think that poet... I just read from ever is discouraged when he's thinking about that vision. How could you ever write something that beautiful and still be discouraged at the same time? That is such a lovely vision. God always offsets the negatives like that December 7th, 1989 firing 
with the positives. Something that happened on the very same date 13 years ago instead of 31 years ago. What a vision. Something so beautiful and hopeful. Something we look forward to all the time. Something that God's work tells the world about all the time. That's our hope, New Jerusalem. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work. You've been listening to Behind the Work. Email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for a new episode each Monday at 1130 a.m. Central Time.